The COVID-19 Conversations podcast is brought to you by the African Alliance with support from the South African Medical Research Council, the South African Department of Science and Innovation, and the Vaccine Advocacy Resource Group, which is 100% funded by activists. Hi everyone, this is Maaza Sayum from the African Alliance, and in this special episode of COVID-19 Conversations, the podcast series, we talk for a second time to Professor Linda Gale Becker, Chief Research Officer of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation in Cape Town. Professor Becker is our first repeat guest on this podcast series, which makes me very happy. We invited her back because of the exciting interim results that were released on January 29th about the Johnson & Johnson Phase 3 COVID-19 vaccine trial. That trial is taking place around the world, including in South Africa, where it is known as the Ensemble Study. Professor Becker is the co-chair of Ensemble in South Africa and very generously agreed to speak with us the day after the results were released before she and her colleagues even had a chance to brief the regulators and ethical boards in South Africa. She unpacked some of the numbers for us, and we also talked about what a game changer this J&J vaccine, which is a bit different from the others for which we have already seen results, could be for the African continent. We also touched on Linda Gale's own experience as a COVID-19 survivor, and talked about the humility, empathy, and patience that will be required of all of us as we push forward in the critical and mammoth task of vaccine rollout in the weeks and months ahead. Finally, LGB, as she's often called, an activist as well as a medical doctor and scientist, gave assurances that she will be fighting along with us to ensure that COVID-19 vaccines are made accessible for all. You'll note that during this conversation, Linda Gale and I refer several times to our earlier discussion. If you would like to hear that episode recorded with Professor Becker, please go to our website, africanalliance.org.za. I'd also recommend that you keep an eye on the Twitter feed of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation. That's at DTHF underscore SA where I'm sure they will be posting updates as more information is released in the coming days. We'd really like to give a huge thank you to Professor Linda Gale Becker for speaking with us a second time, but also at a moment's notice and when the news was literally hot off the press. We are truly grateful. And with that, let's jump right in. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Professor Linda Gale Becker, welcome back to the African Alliance's COVID-19 Conversations podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Marza. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, so the last time we spoke, it was October, um, just as the ensemble trial was about to kick off in South Africa. And now here we are, not even three months later, and you already have interim results. So first of all, congratulations, because I know that getting to this point must have included Many very, very busy days. Um, And thank you for being willing to come and and update our listeners on the findings. 
Well, you are absolutely right. October feels like a lifetime away <laughs> in some ways, but in other ways, it's really uh, been a very short period of time. And, and you're right, uh, you know, all credit goes to the incredible clinical trial staff, the wonderful participants uh, that we've been able to pull this together um, and have results that uh, can meaningfully be used in the pandemic. Yes, and we will hopefully dig into those results because I know that there's been a lot of media going around and I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear from you what they mean um, for the world and for South Africa. Um, but firstly, I just want to recognize that this is the largest phase three trial, the largest COVID-19 phase three trial in terms of its international reach. Is that right? It's the one that touched the most countries. Absolutely. So um, the, the three continents, um, the, the bulk of participants coming from the US, from South Africa, and from South America, a number of countries in South America. Okay. And I just wanted to remind people of that because we had spoken last time about the fact that it is so important to make sure that different types of people are included in the clinical trials in order to, to feel better about the fact that the products will work in different populations. So I just wanted to, to highlight that and ground people in that knowledge. So I guess we well, can... And Marza, not to interrupt, but I want to say not only now do we know not only in different populations, but actually different variants of virus. So we didn't know this in October, but now we know that around the world, um, you know, the virus is kind of doing different things. And for that reason, we need to be testing uh, these vaccines in, in multiple regions. Um, and, you know, that's information we didn't have in October. Yes, definitely. So I'll let you jump right in and tell us about the, the results then. What have these interim results shown? And you know how would you how would you sort of gauge this for what it means for South Africa going forward? So Marza, there is um, you know there are many levels of uh, of results out of a big phase three like this. But the big take home message for everyone is that this is another vaccine in our toolbox, if you like. It showed efficacy, um, and overall. The take home is that it was 72% effective in the US, 66% effective overall at preventing moderate to severe COVID um, at 28 days after vaccination, which is um, its kind of primary endpoint. But perhaps an even more important take home is that it was 85% effective overall in preventing severe disease and demonstrated complete protection against COVID-19 related hospitalization and death at one month. So, so the take home I think for everyone is, this is the first vaccine trial where we've really used severe hospitalization or severe disease and death as an endpoint. And really the vaccine has essentially prevented that overall. Um, and so that, you know, that's really important. I think uh, given that one of the hardest parts of this pandemic has been, you know, our hospitals filling up, um, healthcare workers being overrun, uh, the cost to society and to our health systems of having these very ill patients, let alone the amount of mortality around the world, 
I think it's really important that we have a vaccine that can prevent that. So that really is the exciting news. Obviously, we can break this down in terms of what it means, um, you know, for each country, etc. cetera. Uh, but essentially very important that we are, we now have a tool that we know works in at least three regions in the world and prevents uh, morbidity and mortality. That is an amazing figure, Linda Gale, that it was 100%, um, it showed 100% efficacy in preventing death. I mean, I've seen a lot of press about the fact that the global efficacy rate was a little bit lower than the other vaccines, even though I would just like to remind our listeners, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, that 66% is comparable to the efficacy or even better than the efficacy of flu vaccines, number one. So I know that those first um, COVID-19 vaccines that we received results for had um, an efficacy over 90%, which sort of blew people away. But here, what you're saying is even though that efficacy figure globally might be a little bit lower, the fact that it does, it is 100% successful in preventing hospitalization and death is something critical that we cannot forget. Correct. Okay, okay. And now in terms of the variants, Linda Gale, were you able to see from your data whether the endpoints were the old variant or the new, what people are calling the South African variant? I mean, do we assume that most of the people infected with COVID-19 in the last month or two in South Africa are experiencing the new variant? I think that is uh, a fact. Um, you know, obviously with a little more time, um, J&J and other laboratories around the world are going to be able to actually um, synthesize uh, or, or um, uh, type the, the viruses that, were, that did break through uh, the vaccination and we'll be able to confirm that. Um, but what I can tell you is uh, all the surveillance that's going on in the country in South Africa at the moment would indicate that if not all, the vast majority of infections are with the new variant. So definitely, um, although we may have caught the beginning of the end of the first wave uh, with Ensemble, that would have been October, November, certainly from the beginning of December, uh, the new variant was almost the only circulating virus, certainly in the Eastern Cape, Western Cape, and increasingly in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, and by now, it really is throughout the country. So I think we can, um, you know, and there's been results from another vaccine trial that others may have heard about, Novavax, which was also conducted in South Africa, which showed 93, 94% of their viruses that broke through were of the new variant. So again, lots of confirmation that we are in the, way, in the second wave uh, experiencing mostly the new variant. Okay. And I know that people are very concerned about the new variant. You know, there is the South Africa one, the UK one, the Brazil one. Um, what is the likelihood that the, this vaccine will need to be adapted for future variants? Do you have any sense of that? Well, I think what is uh, exciting, and, you know, you've spoken about Moderna and Pfizer, um, those two uh, mRNA uh, vaccine can uh, vaccines that are now licensed and being rolled around uh, in certainly in the developed world, they um, they have not been tested in the field in regions other than uh, North America. So um, and and then the UK and and to a degree in Europe. So we don't have a good handle 
on how they would perform uh, if they had to, uh, you know, meet with either the variant that's being transmitted in South Africa or the variant that's being transmitted in Brazil today. We do know that J&J and Novavax have shown efficacy against the new variants that are occurring in Brazil and in South Africa uh, because we've got field data. And so that figure, and for South Africa, the efficacy of the J&J was thought to be, be about 59%. So if people can remember the number 60, maybe that's easier, 60% efficacy of the J&J vaccine in South Africa against this new variant. So that is exciting. We know we're not, we don't have to extrapolate. We don't have to infer. We actually know that um, we do have efficacy even against the new variant. So that gives us a little bit of breathing space, Marza. It says to us, we can roll out this vaccine. We will get benefit from it, even with the new variant. Now, clearly around the world, we are going to have to keep an eye on the, the, the virus, how it mutates, how much it mutates, because clearly there is going to be a point at which uh, tweaks on the, the current antigenic focus is going to have to be made, or we're going to have to say, we need to bring on another target on the virus that is also going to be antigenic, but uh, may not be quite such a hotspot for mutation. So, you know, whilst we, we put our eggs in the basket of the spike protein as the focus for our vaccines, that was a good bet. It was a solid bet. What we have to know, though, is that that is probably the most likely region that the virus would mutate on because of the nature of the spike. It's the thing that it grabs onto the human host, if you like. It's the hand that holds onto the human host cell. So you can imagine that of anything that might go undergo uh, mutation, particularly because it wants to grab more easily or it wants to grab more quickly uh, because that would favor its survival, that is the thing that is likely to happen. And indeed that is what has happened. So it makes sense that we not only focus on that area for our vaccine, but we find something else on the virus that is also antigenic, which means that the virus has to mutate in more than one area to evade our vaccines. Um, and that's probably, I would think, what Moderna, what Pfizer, uh, what other manufacturers are running uh, to get done now. And, and that'll be good for us in the long run. But again, to reassure people, we have efficacy data. That is, it's not 100%, it's not 90%, it is 60%. But that does mean that, you know, if you want to think about it, um, you know, almost one out of uh, two out of three people uh, are going to be protected by this vaccine. Now, if we can get coverage up, so backing off again, remember, public health effectiveness of a vaccine is not only how efficacious that vaccine is, but it's also how much it's rolled out. So it's efficacy plus coverage equals public health impact. So we now know, not only do we need to get this vaccine into arms, we need to get it into 
perhaps more arms than we would have had to do in the past in order to reach that public health impact that we really want to reach. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it gives us enthusiasm to get even more quickly and more effectively going with getting those vaccines into as many arms as possible. Yes, and you're actually leading us straight into another characteristic of this vaccine, which is really interesting and special for our countries like South Africa and the rest of the continent, is that it only requires one dose, which makes it easier in theory to roll out. And I know that there has been some discussion of of testing a booster, a second dose. So I just, I wanted you at some point to inform our listeners about that. But, you know, the, the story of this vaccine to date has been the fact that it only requires one dose. And number two, that it is stable in a regular refrigerator and does not require the very, very cold freezing that some of the other vaccines require. Both of those things making it um, much easier in theory to roll out um, across the world. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight that for our listeners as you talk about the public health impact, the importance of having a vaccine that facilitates that rollout um, in the long run. Um, I don't know if there's anything you would like to say about that, or if you're in a position to talk about this trial of a second dose of the J&J vaccine and whether that's something that has been tried in South Africa and has shown um, greater protection from the virus. So let me correct uh, everything you say, you know, a single dose vaccine that is easily stored is a huge boon to the, the every, you know, the, the rollout of this vaccine for the public health uh, logistics of rolling out the vaccine. It's fantastic to have a single dose. People get one shot. Cheers. Have a nice life. Um, You don't have to find them a month later. I'm sure people are hearing the controversies at the moment as the UK and other countries are uh, talking about using only one dose in vaccines that have actually been tested with a prime and a boost. So, you know, um, that's causing a lot of controversy because you're obviously using a vaccine now outside of its, its clinical trial licensure. Um, and, and, you know, we now have data for this vaccine as a single dose. So again, reassuring, I think, uh, to all of us, we know what we're working with. So I think that is ex- very important indeed. But as you suggest, uh, J&J has always had in their plan to have a two-dose option. I think they did the right thing. They are a global health uh, organization, you know, uh, company where they they realized I think how important a single dose was to the world and so their first uh, run has been with the single dose but they are uh, this the two dose study has already launched in the US um, we are on the cards to also come on board with that but that it, that hasn't started in South Africa and I think we will, um, I think we're still in negotiation whether, you know, that is a viable option for us, um, given that, you know, we're, as many people have said, for Africa, probably a single dose vaccine is going to be a much more preferred uh, target uh, profile um, in order for us to get this vaccine out. So, um, we, as I said, we, we may take part in the two dose uh, but um, at the moment, I think all of our thoughts are on, on trying to roll out the vaccine 
now in, in a public health way as quickly as possible. Okay, and I know it's early days yet, um, Linda Gale, but do you have any sense of how long this immunity or protection will last? So the same for all of the vaccines, they're all still in, um, in the field. Um, all the results we're talking about are early look preliminary data. Um, the endpoint for J&J was at 28 days. We know we see, uh, we see effectiveness after 14 days. Um, and even beyond that, we're, we're seeing increasing in effectiveness um, beyond the 28 days, obviously. Um, but this trial is uh, slated to continue for two years. So we'll be following it out for as long as possible um, and trying to keep an eye on uh, whether there's any waning immunity over time. Um, and we're just gonna have to hold on and see how that plays out. What we do know with convalescent serum is there is a time at which antibodies do seem to reduce, but I think there's increasing um, reassurance even around there. The memory B cells in wild type infection seem to be sitting there in, in the background. Our immune systems are, are magnificent. You know, there's another way to describe this. They have, they have belts, they have braces, they have many depths. Um, so, so, you know, we often talk about B cells only. We only talk about antibodies and the active antibodies that we can measure immediately. But there are these fantastic memory B cells sitting deep in our immune systems. And it's looking like after wild type infection, those come up beautifully. And of course, then they T cells and innate immunity as well. So whilst we all focus on the antibodies, um, you know, I think we need to be aware that this virus seems to be uh, requiring other parts of the immune system for protection. And, you know, we're hopeful that these vaccines are stirring up those other parts of the immune system as well. And so we may see more durability than, you know, than what perhaps um, our worst fears uh, might predict. So I think we just have to hang on, measure it and see how it plays out over the next few months. Okay, and that's a great reminder that you've given our listeners that you will be following up with all of the participants for the next two years. And when you talk about um, endpoints, so basically if I were to get my vaccination on February 1st, you expect some protection by February 14th, but I should not expect that the vaccine is functioning fully in my body until the 28th. And if I were one of your participants, then I would be followed up for the next two years. That's right. Exactly. Okay. All that. Obviously, um, you know, we're going to, everybody's in discussion at the moment, but I would imagine uh, that given that we have an efficacious vaccine, we will require, well, I, I, you know, and I, these are early days. We heard this literally uh, on Friday. Um, uh, but I would imagine looking at how other clinical trials have gone, we will be unblinding people and, um, giving the placebos active vaccination. So we'll be following people now in an unblinded fashion. Um, but I think still that, you know, that's very valuable uh, laboratory and clinical data that will be coming in both for safety as well as long-term durability. 
Yes, because in the follow-up, um, you would also be able to address one question that is coming up over and over is in terms of, you know, I'm sure you've heard people say with the vaccine rollout, you know, let me wait a little bit and see if there are any side effects. Obviously, this is a luxury that people in the U.S. and other places have because we have not started the vaccine rollout on the African continent yet. But I have heard people saying, let's wait and see what some of the side effects would be. Um, but with your follow-up of these participants for two years, you will also be able to track anything that comes up for them health-wise. That's right, Marzen. And um, we have a very active con research consortium here. A number of us have come together, particularly around the, the mutations and the new variants. And we are actively putting, in fact, today, <laughs> finishing up a grant uh, that we'll be submitting to the South African Medical Research Council, to the uh, to the Science and Technology Council uh, to very carefully follow up vaccine vaccinees, uh, particularly vis-a-vis -vis variant breakthrough, as well as pharmacovigilance around safety. So there, you know, again, um, alongside Ensemble and the efforts of J&J to follow, we'll also be, as a country, following up vaccinees to be sure that real time we can pick up if we are, you know, if vaccine efficacy is not what we thought it should be and or we see any untoward uh, side effects, which it must be said in a large number of vaccinees around the world already, we are not seeing. Mm -hmm. So I think people should be reassured. Um, most often, if there are going to be any effects, they tend to be in the acute stage early on. Uh, the fact that this trial, 43,000 people involved have not, you know, we've not seen any evidence of that. Again, 30 odd thousand people in Moderna, 30,000 people in Pfizer, a large number of people with the Novavax. Um, you know, I think people should feel reassured. Now, I, since we spoke in October, I unfortunately, but fortunately, am alive and well to tell you, am a COVID uh, survivor. And I can tell you that the effects of the virus are not at all something I would wish on anyone. Um, and, you know, for these reasons, <laughs> I really recommend that people think carefully about their notion of let's wait and see. Um, I would argue that if you can reach a vaccine, if you can access a vac vaccine, if you are lucky enough in the world to have access to a vaccine, you should run and get that vaccine pronto. Um, that's my best advice. And I'm sorry to hear that you you were um, afflicted by COVID-19, but obviously very glad to know that you're alive and well. Um, and I think this gives you the very special vantage point, you know, because as I know, um, the country tries to deal with a growing wave, what seems to be a growing wave of vaccine hesitancy, some of it fueled by social media interactions, et cetera, that there will be a very special place for people like you who are both scientists and COVID-19 survivors and can speak to that experience and serve as an advocate to, to talk to people with empathy and with understanding about why it is important um, to, to get a, a COVID-19 vaccine. So we will be coming back to you on that, Linda Gale, rest assured. With pleasure, Marta. I feel, um, 
you know, as you say, that empathy is loud and real because despite trying, being very careful, I'm married to an infectious disease specialist. I am one myself, despite all of our best efforts. Um, this variant is incredibly transmittable. Um, and, you know, we have an adolescent in our home, God bless him. Um, and he has been incredibly good as well. He's followed restrictions. He's followed uh, all the best advice. But he too, you know, as a young person needs a little bit of socialization. And we understood that. And unfortunately, you know, he uh, came across the virus um, and unfortunately, because of its transmittable nature, um, we, uh, all three of us went down with the virus in my home. And, you know, I have a home that is comfortable. We sleep in our own bedrooms, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, so my empathy stretches to the fact that even following these restrictions can be incredibly difficult. And I can only imagine how hard it must be when one lives in some of the crowded environments, some of the difficult environments that exist around the world and very much so in this country. Um, it's very hard to maintain, uh, you know, complete isolation from the virus in a consistent way. So I'm delighted that we now have vaccines in our toolbox to offer people alongside, you know, the usual non-pharmaceutical interventions. Yes, definitely. Um, so Linda Gale, I want to get back to something that you mentioned earlier about unblinding the participants so they know whether they received the, the product or the placebo. This kind of goes a little bit into what we discussed in October um, in terms of community engagement and feedback to trial participants. You know that many of our, our listeners are very, very focused on that. And so I wanted to ask you one, how has the community engagement process gone You know, from your perspective now, looking back a few months? And number two, what are you doing to give the feedback of the, the trial results so far, these interim results to the communities where you have been working? So, Marza, this is one thing I have some anxiety about. Here, particularly in Africa, we like our town hall meetings. We like the face-to-face, -face, sitting in a community hall, you know, face-to-face -face, talking to people and explaining results, um, engaging with people. And, you know, in, in our HIV world, even though there was urgency, uh, we kind of had time to do that. Um, in this new crazy COVID world, things have moved so fast and have been so incredibly urgent. And because of course, we're all socially distanced or physically distanced and we're all virtual, it just feels like we have not been able to do that as adequately as I personally would have liked or am used to. Um, and so that, you know, remains somewhat of a concern to me. Um, I, I think maybe when this pandemic is over, we'll all get together, particularly with the folk from the Alliance, and maybe we'll debrief about how one can, I, I think none of us anticipated what this new order would be like. Um, but now with this hindsight, I think we can think about how we could do this aspect of it so much better. Having said that, um, you know, the results are very new. They were out literally yesterday, uh, 
was it yesterday evening? I'm trying to remember when, yes. Um, or the evening before. I can't even actually remember the days are merging. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, we are moving to let uh, each of the trial sites, we have a call coming up with them to give them talking points to make it clear and then help them make contact with everyone. Um, obviously, there's a lot in the social media, uh, but I still think it's very, very important that individuals are, are told the news in as clear and as uh, articulate way as possible. Um, and we are moving to do that within the next few days. Uh, we also, of course, want to brief our regulators and our ethical boards. So that also has to happen. Um, and so this will be a busy week. Uh, to make sure we get those those up to date. And then, of course, there are going to be the one-on-one -on -one conversations uh, as we move to unblind participants. I don't yet have an idea of when that is going to happen. I think um, now that the results are out and we know what we're dealing with, of course, you know, DSMBs only looked at this uh, literally in the last uh, couple of days. So we didn't know whether we would be told to continue with the study or stop the study or quite how, how it would all happen. So uh, this is all very fresh and new of, uh, you know, and, and we're working out how to move forward at this moment. Okay, and assuming all of that goes to plan, do you anticipate that there will be some sort of emergency authorization for use of this vaccine in South Africa sooner than later? Absolutely, that's the plan. Um, we definitely have that on the cards. Uh, when we started this trial of Ensemble, we understood from J&J, in fact, we have a letter uh, that went to our National Department of Health and to our regulator, SAPRA, that J&J uh, uh, intends to, uh, you know, bring this before the regulators for such an emergency use um, as appropriate. And so we'll be applying or they, um, the manufacturers will be applying, but we'll be meeting with the regulators uh, together with them um, this week. Okay, that's great. And I know that our listeners are very curious about questions of access and manufacturing. So I will ask you about that. But before we get to that, one thing that I forgot to remind our listeners of was the fact that the ensemble trial was also special. You know, one, we have the, the one dose, we have the normal refrigerator, um, but there was also the fact that you were recruiting people with comorbidities. And um, I know that many of our, our listeners and our collaborators were heartened by the fact that you were recruiting people living with HIV, diabetes, other things that um, many of our communities struggle with. So I wanted to ask you if the data has been broken up finally enough to show the differences in efficacy within, within those groups. So with people living with HIV, did you see the same 100%, um, the same protection in terms of efficacy, the same protection in terms of severe disease and with any of the other comorbidities that you were focused on? Yeah, so what I can tell you is that South Africa was probably the main country that enrolled people uh, living with HIV. Now, overall, we make about 15%. So we enrolled just over 6,500 people in South Africa. Um, uh, vast majority of the, uh, the people we enrolled were, um, were African 
black. Um, overall, that came out to be, um, I'm just looking at the numbers here, 19% um, are black African or African-American. Um, and um, of the female, uh, it was 45%, just so that you have that under your belt. Mm -hmm. Importantly, uh, Jane Jane rolled 34% of people over the age of 60. So this is um, perhaps where we're different to Novavax, where I think uh, that there was a younger age for Novavax. We, we did have this older population, in fact, very a large proportion of the South African group were over the age of 55 because we we the the company was pushing us uh, to enrich for the older population. Obviously, this is the population that uh, needs protection from severe disease and death the most. Um, so that certainly happened. We don't yet have the breakout of those people living with HIV. Um, I'm sure those data will be forthcoming over the next few days, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but we we actually haven't um, seen that data yet. So perhaps in our in another podcast in the future, I'll be able to bring those those details, which I absolutely agree. Ah, sorry, I can tell you that of the the population involved was two point eight percent, so quite small numbers. Um, but I don't know the efficacy in that group, um, okay. as, uh, you know, as one group. Obesity, there was about a third, 28.5%. Diabetes, 7%. Hypertension, 10%. And overall, people with comorbidities was 41%. Which is fantastic because obviously those are the people who need protection the most. So it is great that this trial was including them so we can see um, what the results are for them. So we definitely look forward whenever those numbers are available. I'm sure that um, the collaborators of the African Alliance and our listeners would love to know the breakdown of how protective it was for you know, the people with the various comorbidities. Indeed. I think it's really important. I've seen, so there, there were some reports, um, as I mentioned, the Novavax uh, South African results were also shared this week. It's been a busy week. That was Thursday evening, I think. Um, and there were very low numbers of people living with HIV in the Novavax trial. Um, and I've seen various media reports. I, I caution people uh, to interpret those results very carefully because the numbers were exceedingly small um, and, and num the efficacy was, was apparently lower uh, in people living with HIV. But again, I, I honestly think that numbers were too small to take anything home there. Um, and I think we should wait to see what, uh, what the data shows on J&J, which was far bigger. Um, and, and may give us a sense. In the meantime, the recommendation is that people with comorbidities should go out and be vaccinated. And that I think is a good recommendation and one that um, I certainly back full with, you know, full um, wholeheartedly. Okay, 
Fantastic. So that leads us straight into the next question of access. You know, I know that um, you said J&J will be asking um, for auth emergency authorization for rollout in South Africa. As you know, um, there's been so much discussion about access in the media in the last few weeks. I mean, the fact that we have not had one person not in trial vaccinated in Africa, and there are some reports that say we probably won't have access for the general population um, around the continent and until late in the year. Um, so many people are very concerned and angry about that. Um, I did see that the first batch of AstraZeneca vaccines will be reaching South Africa from India, um, maybe even on February 1st. So there will be some rollout that will happen. And I know that the government has been working on a prioritization plan. Um, but what do you know from J&J &J in terms of their commitment. Um, you had told us in October that they have at least committed to selling the, the vaccine in South Africa at no profit. Um, does that still stand? And is it true that the J&J &J vaccine will be actually manufactured in South Africa, which is something that, you know, the African continent has, has been, you know, sort of at the back of the queue in terms of manufacturing capability. So one, will J&J &J still stand by its commitment to provide this to the African continent at, at no profit? And two, can you confirm that there will be a manufacturing capacity um, in South Africa? So Maza, I, I've seen the letter, which, um, you know, as I say, at the time that we negotiated um, having the trial run in South Africa, that confirms that yes, J&J want to license the product here. Yes, they will sell it at no profit. That, that still stands. And I certainly am not aware that that letter has been retracted or any minds have changed. I do not know, I, I only know what, you know, we've all seen in the media that there is this um, uh, agreement with Aspen uh, Pharmaceuticals, a generic company that works out of Port Elizabeth, that they have got some uh, contractual relationship there uh, to share intellectual property or share at least bottling and distribution um, at that at that uh, pharmaceutical company. Um, I don't have more details about this and I like you. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, perhaps more transparency about this and and how exactly all of this is going to play out. Uh, we will as researchers as far as we can, as activists, as you know, we will hold um, all companies, you know, feet to the fire that uh, in South Africa has now contributed. Uh, I think we've contributed exceptionally important uh, information. I think it was, you know, I, I think this trial brings home as, as we started the podcast more than ever before the importance of conducting these trials in multiple regions around the world not only because humans differ, but also because viruses may behave differently in different parts of the world. Um, and I think, you know, you could say it was uh, great strategy or you could say it was just, you know, very good fortune in that regard that the J&J vaccine was rolled out in South Africa at the time that it was because we have unbelievably valuable information about the vaccine and the new variant. 
Um, the same applies to South America. So, you know, now when it comes to access, we expect to be in the queue and be able to access these, these products. And certainly I will be allowed and, uh, you know, sounding drum in this regard that um, I expect this product to be available to South Africans as soon as it is feasible. Excellent. And we know that we can always count on you to be a, a loud drum because you do wear that activist hat along with your researcher and, and medical doctor hat. Um, so we will be following up on these conversations with you as, as new information comes out. And just also a, a reminder, I mean, we've seen um, information about the South African variant um, reaching the United States. Um, I believe it's also in the UK. So this sense that people have of, you know, the South African variant is in South Africa and people can sort of fend for themselves is actually completely unfounded because this J&J vaccine will make a difference around the world as as these different variants go from one country to the other. Is that correct? So, Maza, they not only go, they, remember, we're all sharing a, a single mother virus, if you like. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. not sure I like to give it that gender, actually, maybe yeah. uh, ancestral virus, put it that yeah. way. There's an ancestral virus. And all of our viruses have grown from that, right? Now, I want the listeners to be aware that the virus, its one requirement is to stay alive, stay viable, stay replicating. Now, as long as it's replicating quickly, and that means it's being transmitted from person to person, its mutations are happening at regular intervals. That's because it's an RNA virus. That's what RNA viruses do. They don't have a great um, fix-it mechanism. Now, if a mutation favors their ability to move from person to person, that mutation will occur. It happens to have happened in South Africa and in the UK in a way that we've recognized it and we've picked it up. But I promise you, this virus will be doing this in other parts of the world. It is sheer survival. And the mistake that is favoring this increased transmittability is likely to happen in many parts of the world. Now we have the drop on the world and in, we can share that information with the rest of the world immediately that this vaccine will still be effective. That is like gold to know that information. And you're right, we don't know how many parts of the world the virus is already mutating in this particular direction and you know, this information is critical to know that as the variants emerge, as they will, then uh, the vaccine works. The second important take home from this is we have to shut down that transmission as soon as possible because if transmission stops, replication will stop, mutations will stop, and new variants will not be born. So again, all comes back to roll the vaccine out as soon as possible, everywhere, everywhere. And then we can begin to get on top of the pandemic. Yes, and that leads us um, directly into the, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about. And thank you for reminding us that, you know, the, the sooner more people get vaccinated and the sooner more people are protected, 
the less likely it is that there will be more and more variants because that variance depends on the transmission. So the sense that I've heard some people say, well, there are all these new variants coming. I mean, what's the point? Let me wait to find out what side effects are or if this is really going to work. You're saying the sooner people, more people get vaccinated, the more likely we will be to even get a control, not even just on the pandemic broadly, but even this kind of the new variant situation. More people vaccinated will be maybe less likelihood of more new variants developing. Absolutely. I, I, you know, the biology says that we can be sure of that. So, you know, that is the order of, of, the, of the pathogen world. <laughs> you know, you, it only mutates when it's actively replicating and that requires transmission. Okay, okay. So, you know, what I wanted to, to end with um, is just any advice that you have for us on on um, dealing with this growing wave of vaccine hesitancy, which you know we have briefly mentioned, um, as you and your team have been speaking to people um, and finding participants and chatting with them. Obviously, the people who come to your to your vaccine trial are the ones who are super motivated if they are participating. But given that you are at the sites and in the field and speaking to your staff members on a regular basis, what advice would you give those of us who are trying to address these? Um, growing kind of feelings of vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, we refer to it as vaccine hesitancy because there is certainly an anti-vax movement, but those mm -hmm. people are sort of at the extreme. Our sense is that the, the vast majority of people that are asking questions are just merely hesitant and have concerns um, rather than being at the extremes of, of anti-vax sentiment. So any advice, thoughts for us as we go forward to develop communication strategies or other ways to, to address this sentiment? So that's right, Marza. I think, you know, the anti-vaxxers, the true denialists of, you know, that to my mind know exactly what they're doing, but they have nefarious reasons for doing it. I wouldn't waste my time and energy there. The vast majority, as you say, require our empathy, our patience, and our support. They, what is fueling their hesitancy most often is fear. Fear, uh, ignorance, anxiety, um, you know, uncertainty, wanting to do the right thing, but not knowing how to do the right thing. Those folk need good information. They don't need our skepticism or our, you know, prejudice. They don't need our impatience. What they need is a good, solid educator, somebody who's willing to share excellent information. So the first thing we need to do is make sure we're abreast of all uh, the information we need. We need to look at ourselves, you know, look inwards and figure out if we have some anxieties, some fears we haven't dealt with and, and deal with those because we know body language often speaks more loudly than spoken language, right? So let's get ourselves sorted out, get, get our families sorted out uh, in, in terms of getting in line with the science. And then, you know, absolutely go out there and be what I know the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast are good educators, people who care about transferring really solid evidence-based, science-based information, being willing to say when indeed you're acting on a best recommendation or what we can extrapolate or what we know best um, and where there is frankly, still a gap in scientific knowledge. 
But, you know, when we have the information, let's be positive and, you know, in a game frame that is positive. Uh, vaccines save lives. Vaccines are important pu public health measures. Vaccines are safe. Um, they're a great way of holding back pathogens, uh, stopping disease and death. Um, and these COVID vaccines have been tried and tested, shown to be safe, shown to be efficacious. And, you know, I think it is useful to know what is the subtle differences between them. But if you don't have time or, you know, you, you, you are talking to the kind of uh, community that can't get into that kind of depth, then I think it's fine to put them all into one basket, but have a clear message around what, you know, what we know about these vaccines. Um, and, and I cannot emphasize uh, enough the importance of empathic transmission of good information. And we may have to tell that more than once, you know, we may need to go back and go back again. Again, we also know the power of, of people's voices who have been vaccinated. So, you know, when, when we do get to that happy position of, of being able to get vaccines in country and, and moving them along, it'll be very important that individuals who can and who are vaccinated then step forward and share their experiences as much as possible. So that, you know, that I think stood the test of time when we were trying to teach antiretrovirals in the face of, you know, antiretroviral concern in, in, at the start of the millennium. That was our armamentarium, right? Good information, often peer uh, to peer. Um, and that I think we have to rely on again, and I'm sure we can do this as well. Hmm. And I think you raise, um, those are all such important points and you raise the, the importance of being able to say when we don't know for sure, because that's also something that comes back over and over that people expect science to be perfect and scientists to know everything all the time. And I know this is a point that you raised when we spoke in October as well, the need to be to have some humility and be able to say, look, we are not sure about this. As soon as we know, we will share that information just so you don't have people um, who, as you said, might have, you know, nefarious goals kind of grabbing onto that one thing that changed, you know, and, um, and kind of transmitting a message that maybe scientists don't know what they're doing. So that humility is really important. And I know that, you know, you always provide that and are willing to say, when information is is coming up and we don't have it at hand yet. And Marza, not only when we have a gap in our knowledge, but also when we make a mistake. You know, there is no doubt that when a new disease epidemic, a new entity is out, there will be errors in judgment. There will be mistakes. I think under those circumstances, we have to be really clear about why perhaps the mistake happened. Um, you know, maybe there was a bit of knowledge. We didn't even know we didn't know. <laughs> you know, the, uh, that, that famous saying of, you know, there are things we know and things we don't know we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so this, is, this, this may be something we weren't expecting, something that comes out of the blue. But then, very important to be able to say, that was an error. We now know this. This is, you know, th this new data trumps the old data this is the how we're going to go forward. Um, and I think that, again, humility for us to be able to admit when we're wrong is, is very important as well. 
Okay, fantastic. So now I want to give you the opportunity to let us know, are there any questions that you wish you had been asked or any final points that you would like to make? You know, I know that our listeners will be very excited about the fact that there is finally this one-shot vaccine that will hopefully be available soon, will hopefully be uh, manufactured or at least partially manufactured in South Africa and has, you know, good participation from groups with comorbidities in the country. It's very exciting for the entire continent. I think this might be the vaccine that really makes the difference um, for the, the African continent. Um, so we're very excited. Any final points that you have or questions that you wish you had been asked? No, I think, Marza, as usual, you've been incredibly comprehensive. I thank you for the interest of the Alliance. I think, um, you know, strength to each one of you. We are very reliant on you. This cannot be done by government only or health, public health systems only. This has to be a community-based, community-led uh, campaign and uh, really looking forward to every one of the advocates to, to, to show how we can do this on this continent. We might be having a late start and that's a huge regret. Even this week, we've lost you know, each of us have lost family and friends. Maybe some of them haven't got into the social media, but we also know we've lost icons and people who made such a difference to health, public health and, and you know, the face of, of uh, science on the continent. I, for those, I'm just so sad that we are too late, uh, but we need to do this in such a way that we aren't too late for for others. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to doing this together with the people on this call. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Linda Gale Becker um, from the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation in Cape Town and co-chair of the Ensemble Trial. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and we are eternally grateful for your enthusiasm and willingness to engage with us and our listeners on a regular basis. Thank you. Thanks, Marza. As always, go well. Thank you so much for listening. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you, provoked new thoughts, and provided you with evidence-based information as we all work to ensure that the global response to COVID-19 is accountable, equitable, and community-owned. This episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast was edited by Luis Gonzalez Compalich, who also provided production assistance along with Vivian Naidu. Our executive producer is Tian Johnson. I am Aza Siyum. You can follow us on Twitter at Afri underscore Alliance or email us at info at africanalliance.org.za to give us feedback on this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. Also, please don't forget to sign up at africanalliance.org.za to never miss key news.